You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Glad to have you with us on what must be like episode 35, I think. Episode 35. It is. Oh, my word. Feels like I just sat down to record and I've been doing this for 35 weeks. Glad to have you with us today. It is a big day in the Bolander house. How big, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. It's actually big for a couple of different things. One is I'm getting a very special package from Apple.com today, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, No, it is not a complimentary anything. I paid for it, but you know how it is. It's just fun to get new gear, and so I'm pretty excited about that box coming, but that is far, far secondary to the primary reason today is exciting. I'll tell you how exciting it was. I was in the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A at 6 27 a.m. They open at 6.30, but I was there. Why was I there, you ask? I was there because I was getting a metric ton of chicken biscuits to bring home to my family to celebrate Anna and Mercy's birthday. My oldest twins, Anna and Mercy, if you are kind of new to the drama, we have two sets of twins. Uh, Anna and Mercy, and then Creed and Cadence, and they're younger. Anna and Mercy turn 12 today. 12 years old. I cannot believe I have 12-year-old twins. Now, I do have a 13-year-old daughter. I've got one that's older. But these twins, man, they snuck up on us. Like, from day one, they have been sneaky, sneaky. Uh, We did not anticipate having twins. Many people don't. We didn't anticipate how quickly we would have twins. And so just because it's their birthday, I want to tell their story a little bit. This uh, whole podcast may be uh, something you have to listen to in a couple of parts, because I'll I'll get to the teaching from Sunday. But it's my girl's birthday, and their story is amazing. Twelve years ago, tomorrow, I was sitting in the 6 a.m. prayer meeting at the International House of Prayer, directly behind Corey Russell. All of this is burned into my brain like it was yesterday. And I'm sitting there when someone leaves a comment on a blog that I was writing, and uh, it was a request for prayer that we would pray for their sister-in-law who just had twins and they're looking for a family who may want them. Well, I tracked the guy down. He did not leave his name, but uh, using some computer hackery, I figure out where he is and who he is, and somehow I figure out who his pastor is, and I call his pastor, and I end up with a direct line to the guy. And we talk for a few minutes. He lives on the East Coast and is just asking for prayer. He said, we're desperately looking for a Christian family who would uh, parent these kids. And I said, what about us? And he said, well, I, I mean, if you would be open to that, we would, we would totally love that. So I said, what about her? And he goes, well, will you call the birth mom and have a conversation with her? Because they are not going to allow her probably to parent. Uh, the state will not allow it. So I made a cold call to a birth mom in a hospital. I would not recommend doing this, but I did this, and I just explained, hey, I've just talked to your brother-in-law. He told me your situation, and um, I just want you to know that if you were interested, that we would love to talk to you about adoption. 
And she said, yes, I would like to talk to you. Can I call you back or can we talk in a little bit? So over the course of from 6 a.m. until 2 p.m., I have three or four phone conversations with her. And each one of them, it progresses a little bit. And she's more, yes, I think this is really what I need to do. I think it would be best for the children. At 2 o'clock, she tells me, I think I could do this if I could meet you. Um, could you come today? Now, she's in Pensacola, Florida. We, at that point, are in Kansas City, Missouri. I told her, I will try and get there today. I race out of a meeting. I race home. By the time I get home, Kelsey has bags packed. She jumps in the truck, and we are headed to the airport, and we don't have tickets to anywhere. And that was back in the day when you couldn't buy airplane tickets on your telephone. You had to... Uh, you know, at least have a computer connection. So we are driving like crazy to the airport with tickets to nowhere. Our friend Tracy Laux is sitting in her kitchen with our credit card number trying to get us plane tickets as close as we can to Pensacola. You know how close you can get to Pensacola in the afternoon from Kansas City? Not very close. In fact, the closest we could get was New Orleans. So we land in New Orleans. In fact, we, we had a uh, layover in Houston. I remember... Dwayne Roberts, who is the lead pastor at um, Upper Room Denver. Dwayne calls me when we land in Houston and said, I heard you're going to go adopt twins. I said, well, we're trying. Nothing's a done deal. He said, that's amazing. He said, what do you know about them? I said, nothing. He goes, what do you mean nothing? He said, do you know what race they are? I said, no, I don't know what race they are. But we jump on the next plane, fly to New Orleans, get in a little putt-putt rental car, and we drive that rental car like we stole it out of Louisiana, across Mississippi, across the corner of Alabama, and into the panhandle of Florida. We get to a hotel room about 3 in the morning. 8 o'clock the next morning, we are at the hospital. We go in, we take a moment, and we meet the birth mom. And uh, she's got a few questions for us, which is completely understanding. She's never met us, never heard of us before. She looked at us and said, um, she had three questions. What do you do for a living? So we talked about the fact that we were in ministry. Then she asked, um, how do you feel about multiracial kids? The girl's birth mom is half Thai, half Japanese. And in her experience, that had been very difficult at times. And I said, well, I have a mixed race child at home. And I did not know what race your children were when we got on the airplane. In fact, I still don't really know. And she said, well, they're, they're Japanese, Thai, Caucasian. I said, okay. She said, would you send photos once in a while? And I realized that what felt like an audition to us was just her wanting to make sure she was making the right decision. And when we assured her we would do that, we got up and we walked down the hall. She checked her little twin girls out of the nursery. They wheel them out in these little clear plastic bassinets. I can see it like it was yesterday. We look around for a room. We find a little room near the nursery. We go into the room. Turns out to be kind of a supply closet. And she picks each of these little girls up. And in the bravest act I have ever seen a human being do, she kisses them both gently on the forehead, hands one to Kelsey, hands one to me. Don't ask me which one because I don't remember and says, girls, this is your new mommy and daddy. And she turned around and walked back down the hall. 
We stood there with tears rolling down our face, holding these little girls that we did not know existed 24 hours earlier. And about that time, it dawned on me, we're standing in a closet, holding newborns without wristbands or anything, followed quickly by a nurse who came in looking for a bedband, found us, and wondered, who are you and what are you doing here? We explained, we're in the process of adoption. <laughs> by the process, I mean we're about 30 seconds into it. And uh, we are going to adopt these girls, but maybe they should go back to the nursery. And she promptly agreed. So they did that. We did some legal work, met with the family, and um, talked through some things. And sure enough, that afternoon, they released us. I had to drive across the street to Target and buy two car seats. I came back, and I'm sitting in the parking lot of the birthing center, taking car seats out of boxes and putting them in the car and people are walking by and they are judging me. I can just tell they're looking at me like, what a moron. Why didn't he do that months ago? And I wanted to tell him I didn't know months ago, but that didn't really sound right either. And so I just ignored him because I had two baby girls and I didn't give a flip what anybody thought. And that is how we ended up with Anna and Mercy. And of course, if you know the longer story, Anna and Mercy led to Creed and Cadence, the second set of twins, which are their, their half-siblings, and then to Scout, which is their full sibling, I know it gets confusing. Get a whiteboard if you need to. But we are a family. And so that's why I was in the Chick-fil-A line at 6.27 a.m. Completely, completely worth it. That's the story. At least that's the time story I have time to tell you this morning. We are going into our teaching from Sunday. Uh, it's kind of a tough message on Sunday. I told them at the very beginning, um, this is something I am burdened with. And my desire is to burden you with it as well just to kind of share the load. And I uh, had somebody come to me last night and said, boy, that has worn me out. I've been thinking about that message ever since, and it's weighing on me as well. I said, good, good. There are some things that need to weigh on us. What needs to weigh on us is this. Do we have faith in God, or do we just have faith in things are going to get better? Because what I feel from the church right now is a lot of, um, let's just hold it together till things go back to normal. But if things don't go back to normal... I'm not so sure that a lot of these people are going to be found standing. Anyway, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews, and uh, we will get into Sunday's teaching. If you go to Hebrews 10, like I said, we're going to start in one chapter and move on to the next one because the chapters were not exactly uh, divinely inspired. We added those later so we could find our way around the Bible, but there are thoughts and, um, and themes sometimes that get interrupted by chapter divisions. And so this is one of those cases where the writer is writing about something and kind of spans the chapter. And if we don't look at the whole thing, uh, we miss bits and pieces of that. Sometimes when you're working on something, it feels like uh, you dive into a project and you're not quite sure where it's going to go, but you do the best you can with what you have. And maybe, you know, in, in my case, sometimes it's been things like trying to fix an appliance that I've never tried to fix before. And you see that you got to take this faceplate off. So you use a screwdriver to take that off. And then you see you've got to take a bracket off. So you find a wrench and take that wrench off. And then you get to a fitting you have never seen in your life. And you're staring at it, trying to figure out what do I even need? I can't even go to my neighbor and borrow the tool because I don't know what the tool is. And you feel pretty vulnerable because you don't even know how to ask for what you need. The writer of Hebrews does us a huge favor in chapter 10. 
because he lays out exactly what we need and what we need it for. So if you have your Bibles, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 36 uh, through 39. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet for a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Now, in this passage, the writer of Hebrews actually pulls out a couple of quotes from Isaiah and Habakkuk to form this entire passage where he says, you are in need of endurance. And he talks extensively about faith going into the next chapter. We're called in 2 Corinthians to walk by faith and not by sight. And if we were really honest with one another, we would admit that is tripping us up a little bit. We say we lean into faith, but what we're really looking for when we say we're full of faith is for things to get better. Faith that endures will endure no matter what comes, whether things get better or they don't. That faith will work. And if we've learned one lesson in 2020, let it be this and... Please learn it now because the lessons are coming fast. There's, there is no guarantee about what's next with or without faith. So let me just tell you at the outset, I am going to teach the Bible this morning. It's going to take me a minute to get there. Please trust me. We will get back to scripture here in a second. But I just want to lay out uh, some of the thoughts about why we're talking about what we are talking about. In order to get to the scriptures that are on my heart, I want to share the struggle of my heart here this week a little bit. Uh, when, when you sit down to teach the Bible, there are times you do it thematically, or you grab an entire section and you teach through it for weeks, or you just look and say, okay, Lord, what do we need to hear about? And then there are other times as a pastor where there, you just feel you have a burden on you about something. And I want to tell you, I am burdened this morning. And if, uh, if this all goes well, when we are done, I will not feel better, but we'll all be universally burdened about the same thing, okay? I'm not here to make you feel better. I'm here to make you feel bad about what I'm feeling bad about, and so that hopefully we can move forward. Somebody, somebody here for the first time going, what did I just log on to? He just told us he's going to make us feel worse. I am burdened because we are not prepared for what is coming. I am burdened that when we look at the timeline of God and the events of the world, we might not fare very well with the current state of our faith. If you look at the events of the past few months, we have learned so much about ourselves. We have learned that we are really accustomed to comfort in our personal lives. We have learned that the church is divided by politics and even more so by personalities. In many cases, we're on the same side of the political issues or of the uh, the righteous issues at least, but we're so divided by personalities we can't even talk about it. We have discovered that we are, as a people, fairly ill-suited for a protracted struggle of any kind. Our grandparents lived with having to buy tires with rations, and we get twitchy when we don't have access to a $4 latte because the store's not open when we want it to be open. So I am burdened that we are not ready for what is coming, and I am almost equally as concerned that we think that we are. Now, say, what makes me think that? This is the thermometer reading 
that concerns me. Okay, this is like, if you look at all the gauges, this is the one that I'm watching going, oh, I'm concerned about that. It is the measure and the object of our faith, okay? How much faith we have and what we have faith in worries me right now. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is powerful stuff. It says, through him, we obtain access to the grace that we stand in. So the faith that we are called to have is powerful and gains us access to God. And I'm concerned about what we're actually putting faith in right now. And I'm going to just invite you on a little bit of a journey around the mountain. Again, we're going to get back to Hebrews in a second. I just want you to understand some of my thought processes this week and why I feel burdened as I do for all of us, including myself. Worldwide, the church is probably, the, definitely is, the most diverse entity in the world because the benefits of following Jesus are as real in the suburbs of Kansas City as they are in the villages of China. If you're in Kokomo or Kosovo or Kentucky Fried Chicken, the gospel works in all of those places, okay? There is no spot where the reality of who Jesus is does not affect people or change lives. It is universal, and it fits, and it works for everybody. If this were not true, we would just consider the gospel to be an American thing, and we would bring back all of our missionaries and call it done. But it works, and it works everywhere. But sometimes regions or subcultures begin to superimpose their own setting over the story that God wants to write for them. And what comes out as, a, as an expression of their faith has more to do with who they were before they met Jesus than who they were after. So here's just a couple of examples. In a polytheistic culture, in a culture where they believe in many gods, it's not hard for them to accept Jesus but add him to the list of gods that they believe. Culture trumps faith sometimes. In some cultures that have a low view of human life, they might accept the idea of a Trinitarian God, but they maintain slavery. And their culture trumps their faith. Now, we are very high-minded as Americans if we don't think at times that we do things or believe in things that are just as odds with the scripture and excuse it because it is who we are, okay? So what I want to talk about this morning is one of those things that I think, particularly in the North American world, affects how we view faith. And I just want to go back to the root of it. One of the quirks of North American faith is how we think of faith itself, what we think it means to trust in God, and even more importantly, what are the things that we trust for? The things that we trust for often would be very out of place in other countries around the world. Because largely what our faith is put in is we have faith in the idea that things are going to get better. We actually have more faith in things improving than we do faith in God, whether things improve or not. And part of this relates back to our history of worship music. Hear me out. If you go back 40 years ago, uh, Chuck Smith started something called Calvary Chapel in Southern California. And out of that grew Maranatha music. Some of you even recognize these names. Maranatha, they had a group called the Maranatha Singers. It was kind of a choir and they would come up with uh, new worship songs and they would publish some of, some of these songs if, if I were to sing them. Well, maybe not if I were to sing them, but if a singer were to sing them, you would recognize some of these songs. But they would produce a, a cassette tape or an eight track tape. 
And they would do maybe one every two years or three years. It just took a long time to produce these things. And these spread across the churches of America, and people began to sing these songs. Now, today, more worship music is being produced this month than used to be produced in the course of three or four years. Everybody and their brothers putting out worship music. And it's a good thing. And much of it is being produced by the charismatic church. If you look at the music that we sing in churches, if it is not uh, 200 years old, it was probably from Bethel in California or Elevation on the East Coast or Hillsong in Australia. These are the types of churches that are producing worship music. And understand, these are my people. I'm not being critical. Many of these people are my friends. But because of the explosion of access to music, and most of that music being from a charismatic tradition, it has changed how much of the church thinks, because we have a tendency to believe what we sing. We sing things, and then we believe it. And it's changed the face of worship very much for the good. Many of you, maybe in the recent years, you visited a Baptist church, and you saw somebody raising their hands in worship. would have never happened 20 years ago. It just would have never happened. So that worship that's going out across the earth and across our culture is changing the way we worship, and it's also affecting the way that we think. The entire American church is being impacted by the music of the charismatic church, and by extension, the theology of the charismatic church, and I wouldn't even say that that's a bad thing, but every strain of the church has its strengths and its weaknesses, and one of the weaknesses of the charismatic church is being amplified through worship in all the churches of the earth. And that weakness is that some within the charismatic tradition have a short-sighted view of faith. And they think of faith as meaning things are going to get better rather than God is enough. And it goes back to their roots. The charismatic church in America would trace its roots back to the Pentecostal church of the early 1900s in the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, charismatics like Bill Johnson and Benny Hinn and John Wimber, all of those guys who had pointed back to the Pentecostals and the Azusa Street Revival. That was a unique season in American church history in that the church had probably never before or since been better integrated. It was a, uh, a multiracial expression of what God was doing. And it's, it's actually interesting. If you go back and read the news articles of the day, what was found so offensive about the Azusa Street Revival was not that they were rolling on the floor in the dirt speaking in tongues. That wasn't the offensive part. The offensive part about the Azusa Street Revival is it was blacks and whites doing it side by side. That was offensive to people. And most of the worship expression of the Pentecostal church, which led to the charismatic church, came from the black church or the poor white Pentecostal churches. Most of them felt oppressed for years, in this case of the black church, really were oppressed, literally, or enslaved. And oppressed people dream of freedom and of things getting better. And so their songs were songs of victory. That's why poor black churches seem happier than rich white Presbyterian ones. Because they've got this hope for victory. And even within the white Pentecostal congregations, many of them were very poor, and they identified at some level with the black churches, and so they sang songs about freedom and things getting better, because if Jesus loves me, then surely he's going to make the situation better. Now, we do need faith for victory. I, I am full on for that. But most of the American church now thinks victory is limited to things like health or provision or their life getting easier. 
because of this long tradition and where it's gone, victory in Jesus to the American church looks more like comfort on earth. And if things don't get easier, then did I really have Jesus at all? That perspective of faith, faith that things will get better for us soon, is too small and ultimately will be disappointing in the season that we are going into. Because if faith is all about life getting easier or better, a whole lot of people in history need their money back. And where the world is going, a lot of people will walk away from their faith. Those of you who were with us months ago, Steve Hickey taught a great four-week series on this idea of why people walk away. Matthew 24, 14 says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because of chaos on the earth, because of riots, because of struggle, many people will go, whoa, 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 this is not what I sang about in Sunday school. This is not what I was told to have faith for. I repeat, I am burdened that we are not prepared for that which is coming. Now, some of us have already grown weary of talk of pandemic and panic and worry, and we just want to make things go back to the way they were, and we can't make them go back the way they were. On top of that, the biblical worldview does not lend itself to a time of perpetual ease, but it's very clear there will come a time, whether this is it or it's coming later, when things will grow very difficult. It will be so difficult that some, if it were not cut short, none would survive. That's Jesus' words. I didn't make that up. And that doesn't fit well with our faith that everything is always going to be okay. Now, we're not at that spot in history yet. We may not be there in our lifetime. But we do grow nearer to it every day. And even if it doesn't occur in our lifetime, it will eventually occur in the lives of those who are living out the Christianity that we taught them was normal. I personally don't want to be unprepared. I don't want you to be unprepared. And I don't want to be responsible for an unprepared generation when that day comes. I am burdened that we're not prepared for what is coming. What did the writer of Hebrews say? He says, you're going to need endurance. You're going to need strength. Why is the writer of Hebrews warning people that they're going to need endurance and relating that to their faith if faith is all about believing that everything is always going to get better? Seems like if faith meant everything was going to get better, what we needed is not endurance. We need, you know, party balloons. But he goes, no, 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 you're going to need endurance. And Jesus even taught us of the things we're going to need endurance for. About a month ago, Rachel Fa'agutu taught an amazing message on a Sunday morning. It's back in the archives on Matthew 24. I'm just going to read a couple of verses of that this morning, starting in verse 6 to 9. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. These are the things that the writer of Hebrews said, no, you've got to endure. You have got to strengthen that muscle of faith, not just faith that things are going to get better, but faith that God is enough, whether things get better or not. How do what we view as faith, believing that things will get better or easier, dovetail with the things that Jesus says are coming to the earth? The church has got to pivot from the idea that faith means things are going to get better 
to the reality that God is always enough, no matter what comes. Because for some of us, things will not get better in life. And for many, one day, things will not get better until it costs them their lives. Matthew 24 continues. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. But to the one who endures, there's that word again, the one that endures to the end will be saved. Some of you are going, this, this is not what we sung about. Like, this doesn't dovetail with the songs we've been singing. I, you know, I grew up in churches where we sang things like, I've got a feeling everything's going to be all right. Like, that was worship. I want my money back. Some of us grew up, literally, I remember hearing a song one time, Jesus on the main line, tell him what you want. It was like faith was an extension of telling God what we wanted and getting it. And even modern worship, and I, I hear me again, some of these are my friends, but I listen to these songs and I say, are they telling us that things are just going to get better or are they teaching us to endure when things don't? Because endurance is exactly what is needed for the direction that the earth is going. So do we still pray for healing? Do we still pray for breakthrough, the blessings of God? Absolutely. But we put our faith in Jesus, and we don't tie our faith to the conditions of how those prayers are answered. Now, those of you who know me, uh, I'm a little quirky, just full disclosure. Um, and because of that, some of my favorite people in the Bible are not everyone else's favorite people in the Bible. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is Job. And the, one of the reasons I like Job is he is painfully honest about himself. The Bible is full of people who speak truth, but the thing about Job is he speaks the truth about himself. Truth is easy for me to tell about other people. It's a little more difficult to be truthful about myself. But it's why God could trust Job when Satan wanted to press against him. He's not, I trust Job. Job is honest, and, and, he, and he loves me. Very few people on the earth have the self-awareness of Job. And Job says in chapter 13, verse 15. Now understand, his friends are pressuring him. His wife is telling him, you know, just curse God and die. Let's just call this done. And Job responds to them, and he said, no, no, no. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. He's like, my faith is in God no matter what happens. My, I'm, I am hitching my wagon to him, not to any of the circumstances around me. And he goes on to say, yet yeah, I will argue with him to his face. He's like, the Lord and I are going to have words about this. I, I'm going to wrestle with him. I'm going to argue and debate. But at the end of the day, I know where this argument is going. And I am going to have faith in him no matter what happens. Some of you, this is really hard to hear because the last few years in your life have been hard. And it sounds like, you know, Randy, are you telling me Jesus does not love me enough to make my life easier? No, what I'm telling you is Jesus loves you enough to bring you out on the other side of this trial made of stuff that is rare on the earth and prized by kings. He's going to give you character, and he's going to give you endurance that is impossible to develop any other way than going through what you're going through. 1 Peter 6, 7 says, In this you rejoice, 
Now, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is not wasting your current trial, okay? Do you understand that? He is not looking at what you're going through and saying, this is going to be for nothing. If we just get to the other side, you're going to be fine. No, he is saying, I'm making you in this season into what you need to be, and you're going to strengthen a muscle, and you're going to be able to withstand incredible things because your faith is going to be ready for things that are coming. And I want to challenge you this morning. What do you have faith for? Because if it is short-sighted, you might get what you're hoping for and still fall short of the prize. If we're going to examine our own faith, it would be wise to press forward a little bit into Hebrews chapter 12 and see what the stuff is that he's describing. What is this that he tells us brings us faith? Because the lack of understanding about faith has gotten us where we are, which, again, I feel is woefully unprepared for the transition into the age to come. Hebrews chapter 11, number one. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. How many of you remember the old Disney movie about Flubber? I don't even remember what the name of the movie was, but I remember Flubber. I remember that very well. There was this, this substance that they, they couldn't ever really quite define. It was it was what scientists call a non-Newtonian fluid, meaning it's a fluid, but it doesn't play by the rules of what a fluid does or whatever Newton said a fluid should do. It had dual properties. Faith is the flubber of the religious world. It's hard to define. It's, it's got an unusual consistency. It's a noun and it's a verb. It's something you have and is given to you, and yet it's something that you exercise. It's something that comforts you, and yet you extend it towards God. It is belief and action, all rolled into one thing, and the most common denominator of regarding a life in faith of a believer is that it is a conviction or an evidence of something that they still don't see. Faith exists in the gap between where you are and where you believe God is calling you. And it's hard to get your head around. It's got unusual properties, but that's what it is. No one has ever truly lived a life of faith that was circumstance-based. That's why to those who don't have faith, people who live a life of faith look a little crazy. So many of you are, are people of, of strong faith in families that are not people of faith. And those who have no hope have concern for you because you do, because they look at you and they think there is no reason for you to have faith. But you've got faith in something that is not seen. And if you read through this chapter, it's, it's literally called the Hall of Faith, the champions of the long story of God and humanity, the ones who are singled out as having got it right, none of them would have won any awards for rational thinking. A good number of them would have been considered coming apart at the seams at the very moment when their faith was making them famous. And that's the nature of a life of faith. Someone with a strong faith 
especially in something unseen, which is the nature of faith, tends to make the rest of the church that doesn't have it nervous. Hebrews 11.2 talks about how that faith walked out with those people. It says, for by it, or for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now remember, this chapter is full of people who really believe kind of crazy things, yet many of them never actually laid hands on what they were yearning for in this life. They believed for it. They walked and, and acted as if it were going to be there any moment, but they never actually achieved it in this life. Even Enoch, who walked with God, wasn't even taken to the point of death, but literally God came and got him and said, Enoch, what you are setting your heart for, I'm not, I don't have, it's not a matter of me coming close to you so you see it. You've literally got to come to me. Abraham did not see what he believed for until he was dead and gone. Noah exercised his faith, being warned by God about events that were unseen, starts building a boat when there were no clouds in the sky, probably to the soundtrack of the mockery of others. Who builds a boat this far from the water? A man who knows that water's coming, whether he sees it or not. He didn't have faith in a reprieve from the mockery. He didn't say, Lord, I have faith you're going to silence these people. No, he had faith in God's keeping power for his family, whether he saw the circumstances changing at the moment or not. Now, I'm not a naysayer, and you know me well enough to know that I pray for breakthrough. I believe for revival, for healing and the transformation of our cities. But I would be a blind and bad pastor if I ignored the passage in verse 13 that says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiled on the earth. What do you mean died in their faith? I thought you lived in faith. What kind of a faith do you die in? These are people who went to the grave having not seen what they believed in, but eventually seeing it in fullness. The Bible says they greeted it from afar. Another translation says, they saluted. It's like, I see you, promises. I see you over there. I'm not there yet. I'm going to be there, but I see you. If you don't salute the promises of God with the understanding that they may be across the void, you will walk away from the promises giver in disappointment. Multiple times, uh, Hebrews says, this was their commendation, or this was their good testimony, or their good story. They had faith that God was enough, whether they saw those promises in this life or in the next. Now, every good story or every commendation involves overcoming something, doesn't it? Every good story's got struggle in it. Met a pastor uh, last week from Ontario who uh, was leading outreach. I think I told a few of this, this last week. He was leading outreach with his church and uh, he admitted it was, it was going terribly. It was boring. They were going to uh, uh, elderly folks' homes, and they were planting flowers and trying to bless the people. And he said, as we were doing it, it was just the most dull thing, whatever. So to spice things up the next week, uh, he showed up in a purple leotard with a yellow cape. Now, do not panic. Your pastor is not going to do this to you. I just, I don't have it in me. But he did, and he showed up in this purple yellow leotard and this, this yellow cape, 
and he declared himself, put a big K on the front and said he was Captain Kindness. And he would run from place to place where they were planting these flowers to encourage the people. And it just became a big joke. Our pastor is Captain Kindness. So he started doing this for outreach and this character became known in their city. This Captain Kindness character. And he gets a call from a grocery store that said, hey, we're opening our new meat department. We're gonna have a ribbon cutting ceremony. Would Captain Kindness come and cut the ribbon for the meat department? So we thought, well, you know, why not? So he puts on his leotard and he goes and he cuts the ribbon. And, and shortly after that, they asked him to make an appearance at town hall for something. So Captain Kindness went to the town hall. And uh, that fall in the high school uh, homecoming, he was the homecoming marshal for the parade and Captain Kindness. And this character just kind of developed and, and the city embraced him. Eventually, this pastor is awarded an award from the office of the Queen of England. Again, he's in Canada. So he goes to the courthouse to receive this award in this ceremony. And he's in a suit because it's a very formal thing. And they're sitting in a room off to the side with these other seven or eight guys that are, are men and women who are going to receive this commendation from the queen. And so he looks around and he says, so why are you being commended? What, what, what are you being commended for? The one guy says, uh, I lost my arm in Afghanistan. And the next one says, uh, yeah, I was a prisoner of war. And they're going around and sharing what, and he said, I am petrified because I'm literally being commended for wearing a yellow or wearing a purple leotard and a cape. I can't share my story about why I'm being commended because to truly be commended and for it to matter, there's got to be struggle. There's got to be, there's got to be a fight. The word commendation in their story in Hebrews, what they were commended for was endurance, was pressing through in a real struggle. Their good story hinged on the fact that they saw something that was so big that it didn't fit into the timeline of their own lives, but they pledged their life to it anyway. They waved to it across the divide saying, my life is here right now, but my life over there will be different. Circumstances may change here now, they may not, but I've got faith in a God that transcends this age and the next. Too few of us are willing to stand in faith and have faith for promises that may not greet us until we get to the other side. Our faith right now is in things that get better here and now. God is saying, might get better, might not. If it doesn't, am I enough for you? Is the faith that you are cultivating like the faith of Abel that is happy just to offer a acceptable sacrifice to the Lord? Is it like the faith of Enoch who is commended for pleasing God? The kind of faith that says, God, I am happy to live for your pleasures on this side so I can experience your pleasures on that side. Or is our faith just about things getting easier and better now? Is our prayer, Jesus, I believe in you, but you got to get me out of this mess. Now, I'll be the first to confess. I like nice things. I like things easy. I like to be happy. But that's not enough to live for. It's certainly not enough to die for. There are healthy, happy people with nice things who are walking corpses who never for a moment consider the greater story of God in their lives. And when things happen that knock out the props that keep them happy, the little faith that they had vaporizes because they had faith that things were going to get better, not faith in God himself. And they lacked endurance. Just like the Hebrews, uh, 
Hebrews 11 heroes, your faith, the things that you hook your heart to, become your story. The things that you believe for and you hook your heart to become your story. I'm asking you, friends, what story do you want to be written by your life? Don't hook your heart too low. Don't hook your heart on ease of circumstances. Don't hook your heart on things getting better. Don't hook your hope on the idea that, man, if this pandemic thing passes, maybe we can just go back to normal. Every good story involves conflict. Search the news. Search the movies. There's no story without struggle. And God looks at the hearts of those that are his and says, let's write a doozy of a story, but it's going to take your endurance. Now, faith in God, not circumstances, but faith in God is enough to lead us to take action. James 2.17 tells us faith without works is dead. That's even faith in God, not just circumstances, but faith in God without works is dead. Go to Hebrews 12, 7. It says, by faith, Noah constructed an ark. He actually did the work. By faith, Abraham obeyed. He did the work. He acted on that faith in God. If we want to experience faith that God is enough, we've got to act on that inclination that he is enough. It takes expression. You have access through your obedience to Christ to demonstrate your faith in God, not just in circumstances. And that faith gives you access to sonship or daughtership that you cannot imagine in rebellion. When you step into obedience to the Father and express your faith in Him by saying, God, circumstances may not be what I thought they were going to be, but you are enough. And because you are enough, I'm going to obey you. Out of that comes a relationship of you being a son or a daughter that you could not imagine. To be a person of faith, you've got to have faith that God is good in the midst of good or bad. This is not a practice of denial. I mean, even Job said, oh, no, no, God and I are going to have words. We're going to talk about this. And I'm going to have my say. It's not denial. But he goes on to say, even if he slays me, I'm going to trust him because my faith is in him. Too often, we set our hearts on God fixing things. And if he fixes them, our faith is bolstered. But David wrote songs about putting faith in God when everything about him was falling apart. If you look at Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Understand what he's saying here is not things are going to get better. He's saying, no, I am setting my heart on God, even though the earth falls below me, even though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, through its waters and roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I have seen enough, and I have read enough of the word to understand that at some point the earth is going to give way under us. I've pastored enough people to watch the trajectory of their lives to realize they enter into crisis. And it feels like the roar of the sea. Some of you are in the midst of that right now. And nobody even knows what you're struggling with. You're facing what feels like insurmountable challenges. And literally no amount of money or strength would fix it. Let me encourage you. You need to sing David's song. 
You need to sing that song that says, I trust you, even when all of those things fall away, because those things are falling away, and all that you're going to be left with is your faith in him. You need to learn into the words, lean into the words of Isaiah the prophet, 26.3, where he says, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Peace only needs keeping when chaos is the rule, okay? He only needs to bring you peace when chaos is all around you. And he says he'll bring you peace when you set your mind on him, when your faith is on him, not in circumstances getting better, but your faith is in him. If you want a faith to anchor you in days to come, you've got to anchor it to something other than things getting better. You've got to anchor it in God being better. Now, I will often close emails with the phrase, the best is yet to come. Say, Randy, do you still believe that? Because it doesn't sound like you might. No, I really do. I do believe the best is yet to come. But I want a faith that will help me stand in endurance through whatever comes my way, whether I see it in this life or whether I greet it across the divide and I see it over there. Because my faith is not in circumstances getting better. My faith is in God being good through all circumstances. And in him being good, him developing character and endurance in me to allow me to stand no matter what comes. Just in closing, what we're going through right now, this pandemic, can't go anywhere without a mask. Starting a church in the middle of it, whose bright idea was that? can't, you know, can't meet, meeting via Zoom, all of this, all these things that are driving us a little bit crazy. He goes, this is for your good. I am developing character in you. I am developing strength in you. And I'm developing endurance with you. And you will be stronger down the road if your faith is in him and not in things getting better. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Glad to have you here on the third cup of coffee. I want to throw one more thing by you before we go. The Bridge is going to be meeting live, in person, and outdoors the last Sunday of September, September 27th. If you go to thebridgekc.church, thebridgekc.church, you can get all the information there. The Bridge is a new congregation being launched in the Kansas City area, and we would love to have you join us. If you're looking for a church home, Come hang out, meet some folks. It's going to be a lot of fun. TheBridgeKC.Church, Sunday, September 27th. Have a great day.